0: By the grace of God always, we continue with the longest prayer of the betrothal service. And if you remember last week, we spoke about the importance of the Christian name and the bond of love between the two people who choose to come forward and to announce to the church community their intent to proceed with a betrothal, a mutual promise to seriously work out all the necessary details, and search the presuppositions to see if they are a good match. They are being engaged, as we say, and not married. As the word engaged suggests, they need to engage each other in meaningful conversation to try to look into the other person's heart and soul. And here's where the help of the church is desperately needed. It takes great discretion to know what to talk about, what to discuss, what to ask without being ultra inquisitive and hurtful to the other person. In the beginning, people are attracted to each other's personality, of course, which is our outer self, the way we look, the way we walk, talk, laugh, and so on. Very few people at this point will be brave enough uh, to point out their weaknesses flaws or shortcomings not because people want to be deceptive but this is just human nature you know these uh, usually surface much later when the personable masks come off during this very important time we need the protection of god and our mother church to guide us and illumine us so that the pledge we give remains inviolate in all things, as we will hear in this prayer, which we will now continue. Therefore, O Lord God, who have sent forth your truth to your inheritance and your promise to your servants, our fathers, who were your elect, do you give regard unto this, your servant john and your servant eleni and seal their betrothal in faith in oneness of mind in truth and in love again we see four different principles here that are bestowed as blessings as gifts from the holy spirit of god through the sacrament the gift of faith or trust the oneness of mind or unity truth and love Now these are not abstract ideas, these are distinct gifts of the Holy Spirit that may or may not be energized by the participants of the sacrament. Those who approach this mystery with the the fear, faith and love of God will be empowered and energized by these gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's why it is extremely important for those who may have been somewhat lukewarm in matters of faith to go to the spiritual father, to go to holy confession, to seek healing and guidance, and to commune very often during this pivotal time of their life. It is certainly not enough to try to seal this great pledge with our personality and our own capabilities alone. We need these four cornerstones blessed and enhanced by the prayers of our church. Faith in God is the first cornerstone. We believe that this union, this betrothal, will aid us in our salvation and it will be for the glory of God. This faith also includes the principle of mutual trust, the principle of being faithful to each other. We must develop this trust, and we must learn not to doubt the other person. We must learn to, and not to, entertain bad or doubtful thoughts. We must to, uh, we must learn to entertain good thoughts, or calus logismos as Father Paisios used to constantly say. Now you may say, well, what are you talking about, Father? Now, how can we have good thoughts when everyone is out to get us? Must we always be the victims of this evil society? Now, on the surface, it may seem unfair, but in a final analysis, the victims of society and those who destroy themselves with all kinds of psycho-emotional illnesses, anxieties, and stress are those who never trust anyone, those who are always on a defensive, those who become a workshop of evil thoughts, doubts, and evil suspicious imaginings every day initially half of the thoughts that we think about then they never happen they're really not uh, you know they're not real and most of them are mixed with demonic influence when we begin to trust our thoughts we become a toy of the demons we are not talking about critical thought now uh, you know about thinking how to drive, how, how to get to a place, uh, how to proceed uh, uh, you know, with, with some problem at work. You know, These are daily thoughts. We're talking about logismus, or these uh, thoughts that really begin to bother us do, during daydreaming. Uh, thoughts of future or past uh, possibilities. And these are usually imbued by demonic energy, and they will soon control our entire outlook. The prayer for a person who trusts in God will fend off all negative and evil thoughts, and he will maintain his peace and harmony regardless of the outside environment. Now, this is not to say that we will not be upset or shaken by the human frailty around us. We will have our difficult days, heartaches, and disappointments. But we must learn. That the events of this life are not permanent, and our permanent city is yet to come. We are grounded on this uh, st- steadfast faith that God is in charge of everything, and He's the captain of the ocean liner called human history. If we enter marriage without faith in God, then we will be trying to cross the ocean in a lifeboat. Not only that, but without trusting God. We will not trust anybody else, not even our spouse. And a marriage without trust will be like a small boat with a few holes in it. Not only you will have to deal with the huge waves, but you will also have to constantly fight to keep the water out of your boat, and the end result will most likely not be very good. Lack of trust is initiated by the daily acceptance of negative thoughts. Does she really love me? Or is he thinking about someone else or some of uh, his past relationships? Is he having second thoughts? These negative thoughts, if not combated with the Jesus prayer or other spiritual activity, will begin to create the presuppositions of a shipwreck. This is why our church fathers teach us not to accept such thoughts, not to let them fester, even if your eyes inform you of some, something to the contrary, if you all of a sudden discover a very unpleasant surprise, if you are well-grounded, you'll act in a serious, responsible, and proper manner without the screams and conniptions, ultimatums, and guilt trips. The person of faith does not lose hope, does not become enraged, full of panic and helplessness. During a shipwreck, he will remain sober. He will grab the life jackets available to help save his children and uh, his family. It is very important that we learn to chase away bad thoughts, thoughts of doubt, suspicion, mistrust for the other person. It is also a great illness to try to make the other person reassure us of their loyalty, devotion, and love on a daily basis. Do you still love me? Do you still love me? Uh, This shows insecurity, It, it can become exhausting. The person who thinks like this will never have the necessary nobility to accept or recover from a possible fall of his or her spouse. Most people will have a tremendous difficulty with such a possibility and here we really need to revisit and we must see God's nobility and how he treats us. We see this unparalleled nobility in the parable of the prodigal son, that bad child who squandered the inheritance of the father with loose living and licentiousness. Finally he decided to return to avoid starvation of course and he overcame all the psychological phases of such a return he humbled himself and i'm sure he practiced his lines father i'm not worthy to be your son make me one of your servants while still at a distance from the house the loving father who always awaited his return saw him and he ran to him and embraced him and didn't allow him to say a word. He didn't want to add insult to injury. He treated him with the utmost royal nobility. He didn't ask, oh, so you decided to return, eh? Did you realize your fault? Do you remember what I was telling you all that time? Where are your friends now? Didn't I tell you all these things? Did you learn your lesson? Are you ever going to disobey me again, to offend me like this again? Son, you really let me down. Now you must apologize to me and show me that you are truly sorry." I think we all need to read this parable several times before we face our fallen neighbor. And neighbor means our brother, our child, our son, our daughter, our husband our wife, who made a human mistake and now they wish to come back. They are asking for a second chance. How did God receive his fallen child back? With an embrace, a kiss, and with a great joy. And he gave him even better gifts compared to the ones he had before. But most of us, unfortunately most of us, we are very small hearted cold-hearted even, and stuck to the psychology of the pitiful older son of that parable, who began to castigate his father's actions. What? You killed a fatted calf for that loser who squandered your money with prostitutes and loose living? And the father says, my son, isn't it enough for you that your brother is back alive and well? He was dead and now he's alive again. This is the Orthodox Christian measure that shows the nobility of the cultivated, Christ-like Christian soul. The strength to accept our fallen neighbor, always ready to offer bandages and put oil on the wounds like the Good Samaritan. Yet this is very difficult for most of us because our self-righteousness, our bruised ego and anger, turn us into merciless inquisitors and judges. How could you do this? How many times did you do it? And how often? How long ago? And why did this happen? How can I ever trust you again? All this shows that we are small people, small-hearted people, unable to exit our selfishness and self-righteousness. The Desert Fathers also dealt with similar situations of, of human nature and they tried to correct their immature monks who needed a lot to learn as well, as well. And they taught these young monks to rise to the love of our Heavenly Father. We read in the in one of the Yerondikon or Evergetinos, about a number of monks who lived in Skeets, and at some point they noticed something improper with one of their brothers. They accused their brother and complained to the abbot that this fallen monk needs to be distanced from their community because he's sinning with a woman. At some point, one of the monks, who was acting like a spy, he actually did see a woman enter the fallen monk's gate. And he ran to the others who insisted to the elder that this needed to be resolved right here and now. The wise elder said, "Okay, let's see what's going on with your brother. They knocked on a door and the brother came and opened. And the elder said, my son, your brothers here have reasons to believe that you're doing something improper. And the elder walked and sat on a big barrel in the corner of the room. He entered the room and he saw this big barrel. And uh, he sat on it and he instructed the inquisitive brothers, the monks, to look for the woman. The monks searched all over under the bed in the closet. They looked everywhere, but no sign of any woman who was hiding very well in the barrel that the clairvoyant elder was sitting on. At the end, the elder chastised all the monks and he said, My sons, may God have mercy on your soul, because you judge your brother while overlooking the multitude of your own sins. And he sent them away. After they left, the poor fallen monk fell at the elders' feet and wept. And the woman at that point came out of the barrel, repented, and they both continued their journey to salvation. These are the fruits of true Christian love. Healthy, noble, and spiritual souls do not aim to humiliate and debase the other person. Their compassionate soul cannot bear this type of thing. I met a number of such holy, spiritual, and most gifted confessors a few years ago in the holy mountain who used to stop people from reliving that painful description of their depraved and sinful escapades. They would stop you. They would say, Okay, my son, stop. I understand. That's enough. They didn't want you to relive your humiliation. Uh, and uh, th- they considered this unnecessary. They didn't want to see the image of God before them in uh, total humiliation. Their gentle and most compassionate souls could not bear that because this man is already bleeding and if you're a good a good ER doctor you try to stop the bleeding without asking questions at this point why did you do this and what not you know that's not good to play with the knife so why why did you get involved in a gang and don't you know that fighting is very dangerous you forget about all that you stop the bleeding so that this man can live and then You will have the opportunity to educate him about the danger of gang activity my young friends you may have the wrong impression about confession just like most of our adults do today the idea of confession is not to punish yourself it's not about self-punishment or self-humiliation the purpose of confession is to be freed from the bondage of sin when you go to see a doctor He asks you to take off your clothes. Now, you may not feel comfortable about this. You you don't want to remove your clothes in front of someone you just met, especially if uh, this is the first time uh, visiting this particular doctor. You may feel embarrassed or uncomfortable, but you do it because you value your health. The doctor is not being unethical. He's doing this because he wants to help you. As a first-time patient, you overlook this temporary humiliation in the hope to enjoy the benefits of long-term wellness and health. The church is a spiritual hospital. It does the same thing. The spiritual father needs to see your wounds, you need to expose your past injuries so the church can administer the proper medicine. We must learn to bring this therapeutic spirit of the church in our everyday relations and in our dealings with the other person. We must deal with our fallen neighbor, with the nobility and gentleness of our Heavenly Father. We should never make it a point to wish to humiliate and castigate the other person, thinking that after this punishment they will never do it again. We hear this from some parents who insist that their son or daughter needs to apologize for the way they acted. Okay, true, when a child behaves badly, yeah, he needs to ask for forgiveness, but you as a parent should not demand it. They should do this freely. How can your paternal heart bear this type of thing? Isn't it enough that your son or daughter is already crushed by sin, by the humiliation of their failure, and now when they are crawling to your step, you are ready to dig them more into the ground by demanding an apology? This is not a noble, but a sadist attitude. When we develop healthy relationships as family members, when we inspire an air of trust, then the person next to us will have the courage to discuss their shortcomings with us, no matter what they are. I'm facing a problem, and I need to share it with my brother, my wife, my husband, my sister, without the fear that I will give them a heart attack. Or, you know, they will, they're going to need antidepressants. We certainly cannot be transparent if faith, fidelity, and love turn into an illness. You know, the, the Romeo and Juliet types, we hear these six statements even in our days. Oh, if I lose her, I have no reason to live. Or I can live if living is without you. Okay, that might be a very good song. But... Uh, Let's not take these things seriously and literally. Love is wonderful, unites us, and makes us feel indispensable to one another. But we are called to transcend these six states of idolatry by filtering them and sanctifying them through the love of God, the only eternal and unfailing love. We will not fare well if we idolize the other person because at some point we will lose our idol and we'll be crushed. We live in a world of corruption, a world prone to false failures, and we may may become ill, die in our sleep. We may be betrayed and abandoned. Anything can happen. We need to be open-minded without being cynical of life either. We live one day at a time, and by being anchored in God, we will be given the strength to to face anything that comes along. My young friends, let's not build the edifice of our existence on a balloon or on sand, because if our house comes tumbling down, then we will feel that we have no reason to live. On the other hand, let's not become heartless and cold, telling the other person, well, you know, if you want to leave, go ahead. The door swings both ways, as one of my acquaintances used to say. I love you. I care about you. I appreciate you. But if you ever leave, I will be fine without you. Now, these are extremes, and they don't help. We need to live and develop a balance of people of faith and trust. Faith and trust teach us to journey through our marriage by using both of our feet. We are connected and united to our spouse, but we also give them breathing room. We don't suffocate them. We make them feel secure and confident as a person. We remind them that the head of our family, our master and creator, is Christ. And he's our real provider and caretaker. St. Constantine Palamas, the father of St. Gregory, had five children. He was a patrician. He worked in a palace. He was an advisor to the emperor Andronikos Paleologos. At some point, he became very ill, and his wife, Kali, became very concerned about her future, and mostly the future of her children, who were very small. She weakened and pleaded with her dying husband to ask his close friend, Emperor Andronikos, to place their family under his custody and protection. Constantine was not amused, and even reprimanded his wife, Gali, by saying, My dear wife, you are speaking so imprudently. I will never trust my family in the hands of a mere human being. I already place the care of my family in the hands of our queen, the most holy Theotokos, our unfailing hope and protection. After Constantine died, all five of his children and his wife entered monasticism and offered great and glorious pages to the history of our church. Therefore, O Lord God, seal their betrothal in faith, in oneness of mind, in truth, and in love. We will spend the remainder of our time on the last two elements of this segment of the prayer. The element of truth, which is connected here with the element of love. These attributes of the soul, such as faith or fidelity, unity, truth, sincerity, and love are not easily achieved. They are daily being tested in these perilous times of our planet. This is why we need the grace of the church. As we said earlier, the grace of this sacrament to enhance our human factor so we can continue to progress in these great virtues through marriage. The element of truth is quite often misunderstood and usually isolated from its eternal companion, love. That's why... The prayer here doesn't just talk about truth, but truth and love. Truth all by itself can prove to be destructive, and love without discretion can suffocate and crush someone. Most young people today feel that the moment they are discussing you know, future plans with someone, even long before they are engaged, they feel compelled to uncover every detail of their past lives. They feel the certain need to expose all their past romantic adventures, possible mistakes, weaknesses and failures, and by doing this, they feel that they are being transparent and truthful with the other person. And there's no doubt that truth and transparency are very helpful. But we must understand that all these movements must be filtered and checked by the highest of all virtues, which is crisis or discretion. The problem with this is that young people expose each other at the very early stages of their courtship without even having any kind of verbal commitment from the other person. People are naturally curious and even rude at times, so they may ask very personal questions from their first or second meeting. You don't have to lie, but at the same time, you don't need to feel compelled to share this information with someone you've just met. You don't need to confess your sins. You already have done so to a spiritual father. If a person is prying, And this can be an illness, and uh, this is very common among men, I must warn you. You simply explain to that person, listen, I'm sorry, but I don't feel that I know you well enough to discuss some of these personal things with you. Please be very careful, my young children, because you may wake up one day and find the secrets you just shared the night before on Facebook. Not to mention that most of us are not really ready to confess our sins and failures in front of the entire world. You may mean, well, you want to be truthful and tell him everything, and that's commendable. But most people today are not well equipped to deal with your truths. It is very different for people today, it is very difficult, rather, for people today to listen without being affected. It is a great science to listen to the other person without being judgmental and without being critical listen very carefully try to discern some of the things that are very important to the other person and if you see extreme demands you can part company in a friendly manner without exposing any details from your past other than your general upbringing, your education, your hobbies, your religious orientation, etc. Even when you advance and are heading towards marriage, it is not healthy to expose names, seriousness of relationship, length of time, and quality of past relationships, if any. This would be okay if we lived in the early... Christian years, the uh, years of the early church, where the Christians were full of love and compassion, and confessed their sins publicly. A husband could say in public, uh, I weakened and I had an affair. And the Christians in general, you know, uh, the family and the husband or the wife were ready to help and embrace their weak family member and nurse them back to health. But this is not so easy to do. People have to be pretty close to the state of theosis. This is why after a while, and I believe it was after the fourth century, public confession uh, was not permitted by the church any longer. Not because the church doesn't love truth, but truth without unconditional love can be problematic and even destructive. There are certain cases where a wife or a husband, burdened by the pangs of guilt, cannot cope any longer. And at some point, they come out with it and they say, I can't take it anymore. I need to tell you that I had an affair. After they turn their ha- their house upside down, now they run for confession. And I ask my daughter, why did you have to tell him? Now he's in- inconsolable. He's irate. He doesn't want to come home. He's on drugs. Why did you tell him? Okay, you betrayed him. You betrayed your husband or your wife. It's a problem. You should have come to confession first. Confess your sin in front of God and then we would see how to proceed and at which point we would approach him and tell him. Yeah, but I needed to get this off my chest. I really needed to get this burden off my, uh, all this weight off my chest. Very well, but your husband is already holding several hundred pounds. Uh, you know, he has all this responsibility. He has stress at work. He has all these problems. And now you throw another 250 pounds on top of him. You're ready to crush him. You crushed him already. Yes, but I need to be truthful. Well, you should have thought of this before the sin. You're being truthful, but you're also acting selfishly. You unloaded all this unbearable weight on the shoulders of this spiritual infant, and now he needs psychiatry. Truth without love can be destructive. Imagine a friend of yours who just suffered a massive heart attack, and he's in intensive care. A day later, his father dies uh, in Greece or somewhere else far away, What, are you going to run to the hospital and tell him, listen, Yanni, your mother or your brother just died overseas, or your father? Or your son was just killed in Afghanistan? I think not. Now, some may argue and say, well, he has a right to know. But the law of love should suggest to you, look, this man is hanging hanging by a thread. Let's wait until he gets on his feet, until he recovers, until he's out of danger, and then we will tell him about these things that cannot be undone anyway. Is this lying to him? I don't think so. Not to mention that we have saints that even lied to save the life of a person, as we see in the life of Saint Dionysius of Zakynthos. Yes, but I needed to get it off my chest. Now I feel much better. Yeah, you can breathe much easier. Yes. But your husband needs valium, and prosa. Well, that's his problem. Yes, it's his problem, but you also violated the law of love. You helped yourself at the expense of the other person who did not have the strength to listen to you. Now, this happens mostly because people enter marriage without the necessary presuppositions to tell and hear the truth, without the usual hysterics, dramas, and confrontations. The presuppositions of transparency are good communication skills and unconditional love. When the climate of trust, unconditional love, and freedom of expression are cultivated in a marriage, then the other person can be open. They can tell us anything without the fear of separation, extreme criticism, or even estrangement. When a person comes to confession, especially for the first time, they are very hesitant. They are nervous, uh, they don't know what to expect, and they want to confess some of their brave sins. And they hesitate. And you ask, my son, is this everything? Yeah, I, I think so. Are you hiding something? Silence. Are you embarrassed? Why are you embarrassed? There's no need to be embarrassed feel free to bring bring it all out. There's nothing that you have done that I, ha- that I haven't heard hundreds of times as a confessor. I will not think anything less of you. On the contrary, I will be very happy because your soul will be cleansed and healed. So as a good father confessor, you're trying to play down the seriousness of one's sins so you can help them along my son our relationship will become even stronger because you are coming closer to christ you are willing to tell the truth and the truth will set you free the spiritual father needs to be very well trained and not even flinch or sigh or even breathe heavy during that very crucial moment when this lost sheep is finally ready to cross the line to be reconnected with the flock any wrong comment Any wrong movement, like looking at the watch, will be very uh, destructive for this lay person who's reliving the drama and shame of his sin. I don't know if this is a fact or not, but it is recorded in some of our books that there's a certain species of a female deer, a doe, that needs total silence in order to give birth. If there's any movement in the woods, any kind of commotion, any kind of noise, the birth process is put on hold with serious consequences to the doe. But our time is up and we will continue with this important topic next week.